Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast with me, Ben Plumley, and I'm joined from Josie, Johannesburg, South Africa, by our regular co-host, the incredible Yvette Raphael. Hey, Yvette, how are you? Hi, Ben, how are you? I know I'm great. Uh, I'm doing fine. It's a little bit chilly in South Africa. However, things are not that chill on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where are you? Because you are... You are in Josie, but you look like you're not at home. Yes, I'm not at home. I'm part of a group that's doing consultation with a research organization doing research on uh, people living with HIV and vaccines and cure. And so I'm part of the consultation group here. We were talking beforehand and we thought we should air a little disagreement that you and I had on Twitter. Um, and it was particularly as it related to a TikTok um, of your president, Cyril Ramaphosa. And he was speaking at France's uh, Global Finance Summit um, last week. And I thought he said some really powerful things about why donors should not treat Africa as beggars um, and how the experience of having to appear to beg for COVID vaccines had really mobilized the continent. Um, and in some senses had led to the visit of African leaders uh, to uh, Ukraine and then Russia last week. Yes. But you took me to task on this. Yes, definitely, Ben. And, and uh, what wonderful words for my president to speak and very in a, you know, advocacy mood. Everybody was excited. However, me, on the other hand, is looking at Cyril Ramaphosa on the ground, Cyril Ramaphosa during COVID and his own actions. I mean, it is brilliant to speak out around injustices, brilliant to speak about how the West is treating Africa. But how is my president different from that and how he treats South Africans? We have been in the dark for, for a long time and my president just refused to take any interviews. During COVID, he just appeared. He just appeared on, on you know, to tell us how things are going and what he wants and expects from us. But very little opportunity was given to South Africans to ask those hard questions. And I think for me, that is the hypocrisy in what you were saying. So I know everybody, everybody was praising him. Yes, it's, it's very well written performance activism as far as I'm concerned. Everybody else can disagree, but I just think Cyril Ramaphosa needs to walk the talk and be the same way when he is in, in the country, as well as look out for the poor. How many people in South, how many young people in South Africa are unemployed? How many people were in the dark? How many small businesses closed down because of COVID because of load shedding, and he just doesn't care a hoot about that. So how is it different from the West? Well, we are going to have to uh, mm, agree to disagree politely a little bit on this for the but moment. You know where I'm but no from, doubt, right? You know where I'm. Oh yeah, totally, if I, totally. If I tell you're, you're coming from you're coming from South Africa, and you're suffering from load shedding as we speak. And so. I tell you, your favorite hangout in Tembisa Mall has closed down due to not being able to cope because of load shedding. The place where me and you had breakfast, the big oh. women's women founded or the uh, you know restaurant in Tembisa Mall closed down because she could not keep up. So for me, it's more than just the theatrics and people acting all kinds of stuff when they're out of the country. So, well, shall we get on to the, uh, the main theme of today's podcast, which um, is, I guess, a story of inspiration against perhaps some of the worst challenges uh, imaginable. Um, our guest today is Dr. Frank Mugisha from Uganda. He was one of the founders of sexual minorities, uh, Uganda, smug. And um, he's someone that I've had interactions with over the years. This is, as we're going to find out, not a new problem that Uganda has been facing with um, uh, persecution of the LGBT community. But it's an incredibly busy time for him at the moment. So it's an absolute thrill that we can have him here on the show. Frank, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is really important for me and the 
LGBTQ community in Uganda that you're able to amplify our voice at this moment. Thank you for having me. Yes, and for me, Frank, very personally saying thank you. And I'm truly, truly humbled to have this opportunity to engage with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate and happy to engage with you as well. So, Frank, before we dive in and get to the serious crisis in terms of new laws passed in Uganda affecting the LGBT community, maybe a little bit of context for our listeners and viewers about you, your personal story. Um, uh, what, how did you get into all of this? How did you become a major uh, LGBT activist in Uganda? Uh, thank you so much. That is very interesting. Um, no, most, most people ask me about the situation in Uganda. Uh, not many people ask me about my life. But it's very important to know that I came out at a very young age. And for me, living in a country that is very conservative and very religious, I definitely did not sit my family on a dining table and tell them, hey, I'm gay. Uh, that would have earned me some punishment. Definitely. So it was people saying, you are different. Um, you're not showing us that you have girlfriend or you are interested in the opposite sex. And I wasn't denying and I wasn't running away from that, but rather I was affirming and saying, yes, but deep inside me, I was just living my life as a young person at that age. I just wanted to be myself. And then I started speaking out and challenging some of the narrative around sexuality and gender identity that was majorly in the media at that time, but also the rhetoric from religious leaders because what they were saying never represented me. But also in the moments when I was confronted with the question around my sexuality, and I answered who I was, I did not face as much backlash. I did not face, so I had navigated my own way of dealing with my sexuality, because this is, I, I had so many plans in my head, how I would approach whenever asked. So I started ask, speaking to my friends and telling them, well, if you are LGBTQ, this is how you can approach the subject. And so me being outspoken one in speaking out and defending and saying, look, what you're saying in the medium, what religious groups are saying, that is not what I am. That's not what we are. And also telling colleagues, see, maybe this is how you can navigate telling your friends and your family about your sexuality. It started exposing me to community. And then people started knowing and hearing about me. And so colleagues started reaching out, different people started reaching out to me. And gradually I found myself in the community, in the LGBT community in Uganda. And then again, because I was outspoken and my, about my views, I found myself at the leadership level, but I did not wake up one morning and say, I want to be an activist. I want to be outspoken about LGBTQ rights. It was a gradual process. Even when I found myself at the same time, I was like, wait a minute, I'm being outspoken here. I still did not, um, I still did not aggressively come out or go into the media or go into spaces where I am exposing myself because I still felt, then I started feeling the danger that, that could, could, could come to me for being exposed. I started worrying, I started losing friends. I started getting questions from family members. I started getting isolated. So I, I held back, but again, because I was outspoken and I was in a position where I was in a, a leadership position, uh, being out was inevitable. So it was a broader process for me until I found myself in the position I am in at this moment. So, so Frank, you were part of a group of young leaders that established SMUG, Sexual Minorities Uganda, um, including your friend David Cato, who un unfortunately was, well, can we call it assassinated? He was killed. Um, how did that affect you all? So um, I was a in a group that started 
another smaller group called Icebreakers Uganda. That was mainly young people and students, mostly my friends. And our idea was to have friends who I'm going to be free around and, you know, express myself the way I want. But then it became a political group. And SMAG was more of a political group that was started by other colleagues like David Kato, Victor Mukasa, and the rest. So I joined up with my other colleagues in 2004, rather than 2006, and I came into the leadership of SMAG. Then um, when David was murdered, for me, it was first, I was scared. I was really, really scared because we always told each other that when we are home, we are safe and we look out for each other. You know, David looked out, looked out for us, looked out for me, I looked out for him. So it was a small community that always looked out for each other. But when David was murdered at his home, it was scary for all of us. It was, I was petrified. I was like, how am I going to be able to continue working in this environment? It was one of those moments when it was very difficult for every community member. But also emotionally, it was very emotional for us losing someone that we worked with every day. Frank, for people who didn't know David, and I apologize if this is a bit painful to recount, can you just remind us how he was murdered and, and, and who murdered him? Indeed, it's, it's painful and uh, always difficult for myself and many of my colleagues to talk about David. Uh, David was murdered at his house. He was hit on the head with a hammer until he died. And the, the, the person who murdered him up to now, we don't know if that's the person who really murdered him or the person who was staged. We've never had any conclusive investigations into the murder and that's still you know, lingers on our heads, staying worried. And David is someone who cared, who worked as an advocacy officer at Sexual Minorities Uganda, mm -hmm. but also was in charge majorly for the safety and security for the LGBTQ community. So for someone who was making sure that everyone is safe to get murdered at their home, killed by a stranger, and the process of the person who was arrested is expedited and charged very quickly. It left a lot of questions within the community. Well, shall we, shall we move to 2023 and the <laughs> recently passed legislation that you have been fighting, indeed for many years, um, our sister podcast, The Global Health Diplomats, Ambassador Eric Goosby and I discussed the the potential ramifications of it just before it was passed. But maybe you could share with Yvette and me just just what is the situation now? What is the law and what does it mean for members of the LGBT community? So what I'd like you to know is that the LGBTQ community has been going through um, a series of violations, discrimination for a very long time. As When David was murdered, we had the anti-gay legislation that was called Kill the Gays Bill, an anti-gay legislation that had a death penalty. So we fought that and were successful. It got nullified in 2014. Uh, we had a breather, I would say between 2015 up to about 2020. Then we started seeing the rise of anti-gay groups coming up and organizing systematically. And so in 2022, we were seeing these anti-gay groups singling out individuals like myself. I was witch-hunted. I received a lot of death threats. I was, you know, I was investigated 
by all major law enforcement in the country. I couldn't, I couldn't feel at home being at home. I almost contemplated leaving the country at that moment because I felt I, I don't belong here anymore. And it was tough on me mentally, but also the paranoia that you live with. And then Sexual Minorities Uganda, SMAG, the largest and the umbrella organization for the LGBT community in Uganda was shut down by the government in, in August last year. And so after that, we knew the worst was coming. And then the anti-gay legislation was introduced. When the anti-gay legislation was introduced in our parliament in March of this year, for the first time, it is the, in the history of our parliament, it is the first legislation to be expedited. It was only in the parliament for nine days. We have legislation that has been in the parliament for 20 years. This was only there for nine days. And when this legislation was introduced, it never had the death penalty. The death penalty was introduced on the floor of parliament. In fact, one member of parliament said LGBTQ persons should be castrated. So the rhetoric, the language, the hate speech that we saw on our parliament when this law was being passed is exactly what has been happening in Uganda for the last one year. The Ugandan society has been radicalized by anti-gay groups, extreme Christian evangelicals from America into hatred of the LGBTQ community. And unlike in 2009 up to T04 when they killed the gays bill, the debate was international and national. The debate right now and the propaganda has been localized in Uganda. It is more on our local social media, WhatsApp and TikTok. Every day, there are pictures and videos of myself and my other colleagues calling for the extreme measures towards us. Towards us. And indeed, community has been acting. We've been seeing a lot of mob, mob justice. We've been seeing a lot of um, uh, people getting evicted from their homes. So it is a situation of fear and paranoia for many of the LGBT community members in Uganda. Yes. Oh, man. Um, you know, that is just such, so heartbreaking. And uh, can you tell us what does this mean on the ground? What does it mean practically? I mean, I saw some of it because remember this was live. This was parliament live. A lot of people could watch it virtually, we could see the Minister of Health doing her theatrics and showing her true colors. What does this mean practically in Uganda for Ugandan LGBTI community there? Uh, I mean, you know, first of all, the legislation itself would punish any work, advocacy, human rights for LGBTQ persons, including our partners and allies, even someone saying that being gay is okay, people, someone could be punished for up to 20 years in prison. And we same-sex uh, acts are criminalized, ironically, for the second time, because we already have a law, the sodomy law left behind by the British that punishes same-sex acts. Again, this law punishes same-sex acts to life in prison. We have a death penalty for aggravated homosexuality. And aggravated homosexuality is not only around uh, people who violate children or who, are, who um, violate other people sexually, but it's also for repeated offenders, meaning if you break this law more than once, you could get executed. The law uh, was gazetted on the 30th of, um, 30th of May. Um, the implementation is we're not seeing the government implementing this law as much as we're seeing society implementing the law. Like I mentioned, people getting evicted, you know, people getting harassed, people getting discriminated. 
community LGBTQ persons are shying away from going to receive medical services. They are worried and scared. They are paranoid. People are scared that they could get fired from their jobs anytime they are found out to be LGBTQ. This law is sending many LGBTQ persons back in the closet. It is worrying. The situation is worrying. It's a situation of fear and paranoia at the moment. Frank, if I may, I've got two questions that come from what you've just said. The first is the, the public attitude and the public support for this law. It's This law was one of the most popular pieces of legislation passed. I think the opinion research was saying that a very significant number of the population supported this. That was right, was it? Did I get that right? Definitely right. Um, majority of Ugandans support this legislation. Uh, the legislation is entirely based on conspiracy theories and fear. So many of the Ugandans believe the propaganda from the anti-gay groups. Uh, they believe, one, that LGBTQ persons recruit children into homosexuality. You know, they groom, that groom youngsters into homosexuality. They believe that if you support LGBTQ human rights, you are supporting neocolonialism. You are supporting a Western agenda that is here to erase African values. So they believe all this information without any scientific data or empirical evidence. Because in, our, in my country, Uganda, majority of abuse of young children is heterosexual men, abuse of young girls. There is clear data that is produced by the police every day. There is no single data produced that there are LGBTQ persons abusing children. So, but Ugandans believe this. And of course, the anti-gay groups have paraded some people and paid them to come and speak in the media and say, oh, we're recruited, this, but their stories don't even add up. But Ugandans believe this because this information is coming from religious leaders. Ugandans have been indoctrinated by the church to believe everything the church says. So that's why you see that majority of Ugandans supported this legislation. There are Ugandans who don't support this legislation. This leg the, the members of parliament who voted were about 61%, meaning about 39% did not vote this legislation. That means there are Ugandans who did not support this legislation. But those who don't support this legislation, they cannot speak. Because if you speak out, you'll be seen as someone promoting pedophiles. If you speak, you'll be seen as someone promoting an African culture. If you speak, you'll be some, someone seen as someone supporting imperialism. So people who are supportive and sympathetic will keep quiet. They are also worried of the homophobia and transphobia they could face. Not only them, but even their families. So they would rather keep quiet. The member of parliament who supported us and stood up and spoke out against this legislation has faced the worst and most extreme discrimination. And he's still facing the discrimination. He's been given derogatory names by his own colleagues. No, definitely. I think it is so concerning and it's worrying that extreme evangelists really find space in a religious community and place so much emphasis and as one in Uganda. I say they have won because of just how the community, and I, I, I want to agree with you, majority of the Ugandan people, I think are homophobic themselves because of what they're being fed and the science just does not add up. And are you afraid? Are you scared just for the Ugandans, are you afraid for, for 
what would happen, the consequences of thereof. You sp spoke a little bit about people not being able to get their medication, but what does that mean practically for a Ugandan person, obviously who can be rented or, you know, wrapped on by their neighbor? I, I've heard of stories because I follow this passionately of people fearing for their lives because a neighbor might just out a Ugandan gay young person. Yeah, I mean, uh, practically, people are worried. Like I mentioned, it is a situation of fear and paranoia for many for many LGBTQ persons, even those who are friends with the LGBTQ persons, because being perceived as an LGBTQ person could also lead you into harassment or getting evicted. People are worried of losing their jobs, getting evicted. Many people are trying to flee the country. Many people are reaching out and saying, how do we leave the country? How do we find safety somewhere else and not live here? So it's a, a situation of fear. Like I said, many people are fearing to go and access services because they think they could get, uh, they would get discriminated. They could be reported to the police. They would get arrested because the law is there. And the fact that it would be different if this law had been introduced in a society that is accepting, then maybe the LGBTQ community would say, you know, the law is here, but it will be implemented uh, properly. But before the law was in place, LGBTQ persons were already being violated. So now with the law in place, people are scared. And it's, they're genuinely scared because they think that now with the law, they'll even get further violations. And if you look at the bullying and the threats and the abuse on social media, then for any Ugandan queer person or a transgender person, they are scared. They're like, if people, people said the worst when someone speaks out in support of LGBTQ human rights, people said the worst, the comments are terrible. So when queer persons and transgender persons read these comments, they are terrified. They're like, they are worried on what their life is going to be the next day. So Frank, you, you touched on the question of interference from Westerners in driving this. And it was a, a question Yvette and I were, were noodling over, thinking about as we were putting this podcast together. How do you respond? Actually, it's a question for you too, Yvette, but, but Frank, maybe with you first. How do you respond to the um, assertion that, you know, this is basically Western progressives that are forcing this behavior, this unnatural homosexual behavior on, uh, on Africans? Uh, well, I mean, when we, before the legislation was in place and we're having uh, discussions with within spaces that we could speak. We, we, we don't even need to make strong arguments around this. We just have to refer people to, to our history, our own history. And I mean, even without going to, uh, um, you know, uh, like researched papers or um, anything like that, we look at our recent history whereby in our own verbs, in our own languages, there are names that refer to an LGBTQ person. There are names that refer to a transgender person. So you ask the question, was there any progressive person who came from the West and introduced these names? People will say no. But when we are talking to people who have lived in Uganda, you ask them, haven't you heard of someone who was LGBTQ person in your neighborhood? They say yes. And they will say, we did not kill them. We did not send them to prison. We did not call the police on them. We did not call local councils on them or any security agencies. We just gave them names or frowned upon them. And that is, this is not long ago. This could be maybe 10, 15 years ago. But now you ask them why the change now? Then they will re respond and say, because homosexuals are recruiting children into homosexuality. 
Then you ask the question, those homosexuals you knew of in the past, were they, not, were they recruiting any child into homosexuality? They say no. And then you ask them, do you know any child who has been recruited into homosexuality? They say no. You ask them, would you be recruited into homosexuality? They say, hell no, I can't be recruited into homosexuality. So you say, if, why do you believe then another person is going to be recruited into homosexuality? So when you sit down and make the argument, people believe it. But the challenge is that people have been indoctrinated. They have closed off the debate. They don't want to listen to reason. They just want LGBTQ person erased from Africa. Yeah, and 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 I have a very, I I totally agree with you. Uh, me in South Africa, growing up, there's always been a gay cousin, a a lesbian aunt, a you know some of these people. We grew up with them, right? And we understand. But just to my view around this, Ben is actually it's the opposite happening. This anti-gay, anti this anti-lesbian come from the West. I think what we do not want to talk about is just how these evangelists, fa evangelists find themselves in Africa and are hugely funded with the church seen as helping people in Africa and in the meantime push their agenda. I'm from South Africa and I say to South Africans, this can happen to us if we don't wake up, if we don't listen, if we don't keep our ears on the ground. For me, and I say this openly all the time, religion is a very dangerous thing. And these people find space in our communities. They sit well, they grow, and are able to push this very, very dangerous agenda. I've recently heard in South Africa an upcoming political party who feel like a minority, right? Actually saying the first thing, should they win the elections in South Africa? Should they at least get some position? The one thing they're going to do is bring the Bible back. And we all know what that means. By bringing the Bible back, all the discrimination is going to happen. And they're going to undo some of the work that we, we've, we've, we've been doing and some of the gains we've done with regards to discrimination. So I totally, totally want to also call out the West, also want to call out the Western media for pushing this agenda. If you look on the internet, what our kids are exposed to is people talking just about how dangerous this uh, you know, the LGBTI community is to the family, to the family values, to the values of people and to erasing womanhood. And we need to start really listening. Why is this happening? And we need to start getting at the table, uh, Frank, and talk about this and really have true discussions because uh, being, <laughs> uh, you know, being anti-homophobic is, is really not African. This is not our history. This is not our inheritance. We have seen women queens. We've seen female leaders. And we know what that meant in the olden days. And we cannot say this is not uh, being gay is un-African. And we must call that out. Uh, Linda Mafu wrote a powerful, powerful piece around that, and I think everybody should read it, but it's important that we also call out the West for their influence in Africa. Frank, there was another piece of it, very timely, very, his, um, very contextually important, that suggested that perhaps um, the Russians, and particularly the Russian ambassador in, um, uh, in Uganda, that they had some play in this as well. And I, I, I note that, you know, um, Russia is the main provider of arms and military equipment to Uganda. And um, the president's son himself earlier this year said that uh, Ugandan troops should be sent to Ukraine to support the Russians. But did, did you see um, Russian involvement in this as well as the sort of far-right Christian Western and particularly American influence? Uh, well, yes, and I would want to agree that um, religion is dangerous. You know, growing up as a Christian and a Catholic, practicing Catholic, I still up to now cannot understand why religious leaders would promote hatred and not acceptance and tolerance 
And for me, it took me a very long time as a Christian to, to understand it, that you know, religion could be dangerous and put people in danger, because now I'm seeing this happen. Uh, the question around Russia, there's been a rumor, and you know, the rumor has been going on in Uganda that uh, Russia could have supported uh, the anti-gay anti legislation, but also there was a rumor that there was a conference in Uganda called the African uh, Family Values Conference that brought together different members of parliament from the region, from the African region. And uh, this conference um, ended with a communique that was calling on other African nations to pass similar legislations. Uh, there was a rumor that this could have been funded by the Russian, um, but we don't have any evidence. The only thing we have are rumors. And I mean, most of the work that has been supported by the, the anti-gay groups, you know, it, 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 it's, it's hard to trace because unlike the progressive movement where there's a lot of requirements before you receive any sort of funding, the conservative and extreme um, anti-gay and anti-gender groups, they give their money to their colleagues as gifts. Some things don't even require any kind of reporting. So the trace of that funds has been not easy to trace, but yes, there were rumors. Uh, for the anti, for the, for the anti-gay groups, the Christian extreme evangelicals, they have appeared in Uganda. You've seen them at the conference. Uh, during the first, um, the introduction of the Kill the Gays bill, we had uh, Scott Lively from um, Massachusetts. We had Low Engel from Kansas City. These all came and spoke out many times promoting the legislation. Most recently with this legislation, there was uh, Sharon Slater from Family Watch uh, International. She was in Uganda supporting the legislation, but also um, making... Um, fighting comprehensive sexuality education, but also uh, sort of trying to convince Ugandan politicians and leaders uh, that they should start uh, conversion therapy on many of the LGBTQ persons. So um, there, there were other people who came from the UK and from other countries that attended this conference, but the most visible person that I've seen reported so much in the media has been Sharon Slater. So you can see that the influence of the extreme American evangelicals is, is very visible. And I, I saw uh, maybe what we saw around Russia was only the Russian embassy in Kenya saying on Twitter that they support African family values uh, when, Kenya, when Kenya got the backlash after the high court ruling on, uh, on, 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 the, on the case in the LGBT issue in Kenya. So that's all we've seen. Most of these come as rumors, but of course, if rumors are there, people are talking, people are saying things. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other question that, that sort of really strikes me um, uh, about this is the, and you mentioned this um, uh, Pan-African conference protecting so-called family values is the way that this is, uh, if you'll excuse the, the language, um, infecting other countries. There are conversations happening in Kenya, in Burundi, in Ghana. And, and I just wonder for, for really the both of you, whether you think, um, you know, there is, that th there really is a risk of this becoming a much broader movement. No, definitely, Ben. Uh, definitely, some many of the Af other African countries uh, uh, will copy. We know Tanzania, we know Kenya, and but we must call out the good countries. I think it's important that we must commend. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm not a fan of Paul Kagame, but when he said this, when he said what happens in people's bedroom is not a presidential thing, I was clapping, you know, on the sidelines. And when he banned illegal churches in, you, in, in, in his country, that was another step and move for me that shows that Paul Kagame is a oh, step ahead. And other countries need to look at countries like South Africa, uh, countries like Rwanda, and why are they so against 
not discriminating uh, against their own people. But yes, obviously other countries are looking at it, but we must call out the good countries. And I really, really, really want to commend Paul Gagame for his public public comments. And this is to his neighbor, by the way. It's not too far away. I think you can walk to Rwanda if you're in Uganda. Do you know, it's funny, given how we started off with um, Comrade Cyril, and I can't believe that uh, my sister and co-host is uh, is uh, doing a call out for Paul Kagame. Wow, there's a one. But, but Frank, your sense of um, how the um, how what you're dealing with in Uganda is sort of expanding perhaps across borders. Yeah, so the spillover is, um, is, is, is um, noticeable, uh, definitely. And after the conference, the African Fam Pan-African Family Values Conference, we immediately saw one of the legislators who was in the conference in Uganda. He was in Kenya trying to introduce a legislation and so, and most recently, I think last week, we saw Cameroon saying um, a French ambassador who was going to uh, speak about LGBT human rights is not allowed in the country. And then there was a demonstration at some point in Zambia. There were of LGBTQ persons in Burundi. Uh, there was arrest in Somaliland. We still have the anti-gay legislation in Ghana. So the spillover is real. And the, it's worrying that the extreme conservative groups are taking over. And they are not only, it is now LGBTQ human rights, but they are going to go further than that. They are going to go for other, um, they, they are going to go for other issues. They are anti-gender, of course. They are pro-life. So they are going to go for other issues. One is in Uganda right now, they are trying to introduce a legislation that would, add, would outlaw or ban women who are not married from using modern technology to have children. So you cannot access IVF until you have a marriage certificate. So this is extreme conservativeness. We are, we are, we are letting the conservatives win by the time we, we take a decision to say, you know, we need a global reaction. Countries need to put LGBTQ human rights and sexual rights into their own foreign policy. And I'm not saying countries in the West. I'm saying countries everywhere, countries that are progressive in Africa. South Africa should walk the talk. You know, Rwanda that does not criminalize. And we made a case of saying, you know, because they say, if you don't criminalize homosexuality, population will end. If you don't criminalize homosexuality, all the, the, the men are going to become gay. If you don't criminalize homosexuality, people will not go to church anymore. But we're saying in Rwanda, people are still having children, people are still going to church, and population hasn't ended. Um, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was watching something of a member of parliament who said that when Canada was fighting for LGBTQ human rights, the anti-gay groups and conservative groups says he's fighting for rights for uh, people to marry animals. And he said he, that is 30 years ago and he's married his husband for over 20 years and no one has married an animal. So we progressive voices need to raise up and counter the conservative voices. You need to match the money. They are saying that the conservative voices spend a lot, about 3.9 billion US dollars in promoting anti-gay and anti-gender legislations and propaganda. But no progressive person is spending that kind of money in countering these voices. There are many other countries that have to celebrate Angola, Botswana, Namibia. There are many African countries where you know, they're not going to legislate and they're also, they're also getting progressive. And I can also be, I also, I'm trying to believe it that the anti-gay groups and anti-gender groups might not be successful in Kenya as well, because Kenya is also a progressive society. So there are still countries that are going to fight back. There are still countries that are going to be progressive. I mean, there are countries where it's getting worse, where people can't speak like, we can speak like Tanzania and other places. 
So I think the progressive voices need to wake up now and look at this situation as a global issue. And maybe what they can add on, we're seeing the backlash happening in the United States, happening in the UK. Transgenderists are being reversed. LGBTQ persons are being bullied every day. We're seeing the reverse of all the progressive gains we had made over the years. I, that totally resonates with me. And here in the United States, you know, this issue of um, drag queens or transgender people or uh, gay and lesbians grooming children, that's reappearing. These are the same arguments. And indeed, it's the same far-right activists pushing it. And again, I think you are also absolutely right that it isn't just us. I mean, sure, maybe the LGBT community are the canaries in the coal mine. But in the United States, it's reproductive health, it's access to abortion. And we're seeing that right across the globe. So I think to our minds, your fight is our fight and our fight is your fight. Yeah. Yes. So we're at the top of the hour, Frank, and uh, we should let you get to bed because you're in Stockholm, Sweden, aren't you, at the moment? Yes, I'm in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. So going back to what you said earlier, when Yvette asked you, were people scared? What were they doing? Do you feel comfortable answering that question for yourself? I mean, I just hearing everything, you are you are such a visible known activist. Are you scared? Of course I'm scared. I live in a country that is very conservative. I'm at, at, um, I cannot do the same things many of my colleagues do in, in my country because I'm worried. Uh, I've seen firsthand how people are getting violated. I've seen firsthand how people are getting arrested. I've seen firsthand how, how you know, all the violence happened towards the LGBT community. And I'm very visible. And like I mentioned last year, I was singled out. I faced the worst. So I am not only scared, I'm paranoid, but this is also, uh, you know, giving me a lot of trauma and mental health. I mm. know myself. So the question of asking me if I'm scared, I am scared. Oh, yes, yeah. So Frank, we did this podcast hoping to tell your story wanting to hear from you directly, but what can we do to help you? I almost feel like whatever we do would not be enough, but can you tell us what can we do to help? Ugandans, you, LGBTI community, what can we do? Well, I'm, I mean, amplifying the voice of the LGBTQ community is very important, not only in Uganda, but even in other places like, like Tanzania, um, Ghana and other places uh, where LGBTQ people are being discriminated and can't speak out, giving them a platform for the international community to know what is going on. But it is important, again, like I mentioned, for the international community not to look at Uganda as an isolated incident. The progress is being undermined globally we should start addressing the issue of homophobia and transphobia as a global issue. We should start addressing the issue of anti-gay legislation as a global issue. We need a lot of solidarity as Ugandans. We need solidarity to make sure that the issue remains on people's minds. People have to keep speaking about, about Uganda. Reach out to any Ugandan you know, people who are watching. If you know any Ugandan queer person, reach out directly to them. Ask them how you can help them. It's very difficult to propose blanket assistance, but reach out directly to people and see how you can help them. Provide any kind of resources that you can. Encourage, I think it's good to encourage uh, progressive countries in Africa to speak out and engage. Progressive business leaders are important. Politicians will listen to them because they partner with them. Let them tell them how these legislations are not good for their profits, how these legislations are not good for tourism, 
how such legislations are not good for their own human resource. If you have queer persons and transgender persons who want to, have to go abroad and work in these countries that have extreme legislations, they won't be comfortable. Let them make a case for these countries that are trying to bring up such legislations that they are not good for business. They are not good for investment. Again, solidarity is very important. Providing resources is key. Any resources can support queer communities in Uganda, in Tanzania, anywhere to fight back is very key. But solidarity is very important. And the space like this, amplifying and providing media that provides a clear narrative on the situation and what is happening, hosting individuals like myself that are on the ground is key to tell our story. And for us to listen to you about what you need rather than us telling you what you need, which of course is a particular failing of uh, Western liberal progressivism anyway. <laughs> so, Yeah, and I think important, Ben, before we close up, it's just for us as Africans in the African continent to call up on our leaders to call out the Ugandan government. I have not heard one African leader calling out Museveni, and that is problematic in all its sense. I've not heard one African country, president or government call, telling Ugandans they are safe in their country. For me, that's hugely problematic and we need to call that out. So from my side, I will help keeping my feet on the tar road. You know, Frank, how South Africans do it. We will be on the peripherals of the tar road and on the sidewalks picketing for my president, Cyril Ramaphosa, to make South Africa safe for Ugandans as they run away from their own president, their own father, who has criminalized them. And that makes me very, very angry. Thank you so much. And we appreciate all the support from South Africa. We've seen the solidarity since the legislation was introduced in our parliament, and we appreciate that so much. Thank you. We want more African countries indeed speak out and call on their leaders to speak out. Well, that's our call to action from this podcast. So, Frank, it's been an absolute honor, privilege, and, and really humbling for us to, to be with you. I, I am lost for words about the kind of leadership that you embody. And um, it's just been a real honor for us to have you on, on a Shot in the Arm podcast. And keep us posted and anything that we can do to help, anything that we can do to amplify your message, your, your needs, the community's needs, you know where we are. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Frank Magisha, thanks to Yvette Raphael, my partner in crime and co-host. Thanks also to Eric Espera, our director and producer from Newsdoc Media, as always. Thank you to the Global Listening Project, which is now the home of a Shot in the Arm podcast. And finally, a big thanks to you. In the show notes, there'll be information about how you can help Frank and the LGBT community in Uganda and indeed, the, uh, the fight against appalling ways in which the community is being challenged around the world. But we hope you have a great week and a safe week, everybody. <laughs>